Well, it's a joy to be able to worship with you today. If we haven't met, uh, my name is Jason, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ's Covenant, and I have the honor of opening God's Word with you. If you do have your Bibles, even there in your own homes, I invite you to, to, to take them and use them during this time. Um, today's a little bit of a different kind of sermon. We're going to be looking at a lot of different texts as we answer this question, can we really trust the Bible? But I want to begin with three passages of Scripture one from Psalm 19, one from Luke chapter 1, and one from Luke chapter 24. And all of these passages uh, speak to uh, the reliability and power of God's Word. So let me read these passages aloud if you'll listen along and, and feel free to follow along um, as I read them. This is uh, from Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11, which says, The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Let me look at Luke 1 with you. I'm just going to look at Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. This is how Luke begins his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who have from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the word delivered them to us. It seemed good for me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then finally from Luke 24, verse 25 through 32, Luke 24 verse 25 through 32. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening of the day, and the day is now spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then they said to one another, verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? All of this is the word of the Lord. Well, over the past four weeks, we have been asking several questions, really important questions, uh, questions that if you're not a Christian, you probably have asked. There are probably reasons that you don't believe, and, and questions that if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, 
you should have asked, and you need to know how to answer these things. And this week, I want to look at one of the questions that I think is one of the most important questions uh, that we can be asking, and that is, is the Bible reliable? Can we trust the Scripture? Can we really hang our lives on this book and on what it says? Is that even a plausible thing to do? Because really, as Christians, we, we are resting so much of how we understand the world because we believe that the words contained in the Scripture, in the Bible, are the very words of God. But can you trust those words? But really, without the Bible, without these words, the, the things that we believe, the doctrines, the anchors that hold our faith together, they really fall apart. Uh, Benjamin Warfield, 19th century scholar, said this, the trustworthiness of the scriptures lies at the foundation of trust in the Christian system of the doctrines. So you can't have doctrine unless you have faith or trustworthiness of the scripture. And it's therefore fundamental to Christian hope and Christian life. If, if, if you don't have a foundation of Scripture, if you can't believe and trust the Word of God, then, then you don't have much Christian hope or much Christian life. And, and this is an interesting thing for us to be talking about right now, because literally from the foundation of the church, from the very beginning of the church, people have tried to build a faith that was not anchored in Scripture. People have been trying to actually remove the Bible from Christianity from the very beginning. I'm teaching a course right now at a local seminary at RTS, and we talked this week about Augustine. Augustine was a 4th century, 4th and 5th century church father, church leader, and it was just interesting. It made me think about all these things. He had to deal with the, the Gnostics. He had to deal with the Neoplatonists. He had to deal with um, the Manichees, and, 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 and so much of these kind of faith pieces, these religions of the day, the, the Gnostics, the Manichees, these were religions, these were groups of people that were trying to build, I think the best way to understand it, they were trying to build a type of Christianity that didn't rely on the Scriptures, or that certainly didn't need the events that are talked about in the Scriptures. Um, Thomas Jefferson, obviously much later, in scripture came along and tried to remove the uh, supernatural events of the Bible, believed in some of the good moral teaching of scripture, but said, we don't need all this supernatural. This was the enlightenment after all. We believed in human reason. We don't need these supernatural events. Uh, even before Augustine, even, even before that time, there was, a, there was a leader named Marcion who said, look, Christianity doesn't need the Old Testament. Uh, we need to remove the Old Testament from Christianity, and it will be much stronger. Now, now, the interesting thing about all of these guys is that I believe that, that most of the time, when people have tried to kind of build a faith outside of the Scripture, they've done so with the best of intentions. Their goal was actually to try to save Christianity, was try to help Christianity. People like Marcion looked at the Old Testament and said, look, there's all this violence. There's all these weird things going on. Let's get rid of the Old Testament and we'll have a stronger faith. Uh, the liberal scholarship that's dominated so much of so many of the mainline churches of today, that some of their key thinkers like Friedrich Schleiermacher, Rudolf Bultmann, these guys that what they were trying to do is actually help Christianity. They were saying, look, we, we can't continue to believe these things in a changing world. 
They would say things like, think about the next generation. They would, things, they would say things like the Old Testament, the supernatural, the virgin birth. We don't need these things to be a barrier for people to come to Christ, for people to become Christians. But the problem with this is that if you remove these things, if you remove the Old Testament, if you remove the supernatural, if you remove the virgin birth, what happens is, is you end up without Christianity at all. You end up with another religion. You end up with something that never really satisfies or speaks to the true problems of the human heart. Because, as Warfield said, the trustworthiness of the Scriptures lies at the foundation of trust in the Christian system of doctrine. And it's therefore fundamental to Christian hope and life. But can you trust the Bible? Is that a viable thing to believe? This book that has been passed down from generation to generation, can we really believe that it is God's word? Well, again, what I want to do is jumping off from the text that I read earlier, I want to look at three things, three reasons that I believe you can trust the scriptures. And I believe these are, you can trust the Bible biblically from what the Bible says about itself and how it is a, a witness to itself. We'll talk about that. You can trust the Bible historically and you can trust the Bible personally. So let's jump into these. So biblically, what does the Bible say about itself? Now, in one sense here, I'm responding to what some people say about inspiration. Some people will say, well, look, I believe that biblical authors may have been inspired, right? God may have inspired them in some way, but we can't really trust what they wrote down because they were subject to their own level of education. They were subject to their own time, to their own culture, to their own limited knowledge. And so maybe there was some inspiration that was happening, but we can't trust in the viability of all of the Bible. And the way that I would respond to that is just say, that's not how the Bible talks about itself. That's not what we see in the Bible. I mean, just look at the words of the passage that I read at the very beginning of the sermon. This is from Psalm 19. The law, okay, the word, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There's no error in God's command. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What is the psalmist talking about here? The psalmist is talking about the Mosaic law, and he's not emphasizing Moses was inspired in some way when he wrote this, that obviously we believe he was, but what is he saying? He said, no, what, what is written is true. What is written is perfect. What is written, the word is altogether true. And all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Bible, there is a premium, there is an emphasis put on the word of God. These words are God's word. Exodus chapter 20 is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. What do we read? And God spoke these words. Psalm 119, which is actually the longest chapter in your whole Bible. The psalmist, it's this praise of God for his word, for the law that he has delivered. Just a couple of passages from that. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heaven. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 105, your word 
is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When you look at the New Testament, when you, when you see not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, how the New Testament authors are talking about inspiration in the Word of God. Again, it's not just that there was some kind of inspiring guys that were writing things down. No, it's, it's the words that they were writing down actually had power. Jesus, of course, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus himself says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hebrews 4, 12 and uh, 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is interesting. This passage has always fascinated me. It, it begins talking about the word of God that's living and active, but then notice how it switches in verse 13. And then it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see what's happening here? It's saying that, that actually in the word of God, there, there, you can actually know God, that you can experience the very presence of the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.16, this is a passage that Blake preached, um, uh, I think late last year, 3.16 and 17. Listen, listen to this, listen, listen how it begins. All scripture, right? All of the Bible is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And again, I could go on and on about this. The, the Bible understands itself not to just be a collection of things written down by important figures who may or may not have been inspired, but no, the Bible understands itself. When it talks about itself, it talks about itself as the word of God. I say this to say, this may not convince you that it is the word of God, but you can't go halfway with inspiration. You can't say there's some good truths in the Bible and some that we should leave out. That's not how the Bible understands itself. That's not using the book rightly. And again, we see this throughout the Bible, whether it's the psalmist, whether it's the Old Testament law, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Paul, this is how the Bible is under, has always been understood. And it's, it's, it's how the Bible has always been understood by the church. The Bible attests that it is the very words of God. You have to believe that or you just have to reject the whole thing. You, you can't really go halfway with inspiration. Another thing on this, the, the Bible didn't become inspired at some point. I remember I was at an event one time and I was talking to this guy. He actually was a Christian minister, okay? This, this guy was a Christian minister and he said to me, well, of course, the church didn't have the Bible until the fourth century. You ever heard this? I, I've heard people say this. The church didn't have the Bible until the fourth century. And I said to him, I said, who told you that? And he said, he wasn't a pastor. He was, he was a parachurch leader. He said, well, my, my pastor told me this. And I said, you need to go tell your pastor that he's wrong. And you need to go tell your pastor that that is an incredibly misleading statement. What, what the church had in the fourth century, what's, what's being referenced here, is the Easter letter of Athanasius, which in, in 367, in his Easter letter, Athanasius, a bishop, wrote a list of what we have now as the New Testament books. And this kind of became known as the official list of these 27 books that we now have 
as the New Testament. But to say that before that, the church didn't have the Bible is wrong and misleading. The church has always gathered around the scripture as the word of God. Before the New Testament books were written, the church gathered around the Old Testament. They were understanding the life of Christ, the events of Christ, through the lens of the Old Testament scriptures. And then once the New Testament books were written, as they were being written, they were used among the church as scripture. In fact, we even see this in the Bible. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, Peter refers to the writing of Paul as scripture. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians quotes the gospel of Luke as authoritative scripture. So as these books are being written, they're being widely used. They're being understood across the church. All 27 of our New Testament books were being used widely across the church as scripture, as the word of God. So to say that the church didn't have the Bible until the fourth century is wrong and incredibly misleading. You know, it's interesting, another critique of the New Testament People will say, well, we can't really you know, trust the authority of the New Testament because we don't have any of the manuscripts, any of the original copies. And that's true. We, we don't have the actual piece of paper, for example, that Paul wrote the book of Romans on. But when you consider what we do have, the Bible, this is, this is miraculous, really, what we do have. Talk to any archaeologist. Talk to anyone that knows in antiquities. What we do have in Scripture is unlike anything else in, in antiquities. There are presently that you can put your hands on today. Now, you can't put your hands on them, and I can't. They only allow really special people to actually hold these documents. But people can put their hands on today 5,686 ancient Greek copies in existence today of the New Testament that were written within 100 years of the manuscripts. 5,686 copies today, here, 1,900 years later, that were written within 100 years of the original manuscripts. That is incredible considering the ancient world and considering antiquities. Do you know how many ancient copies of Plato? Plato, one of the giant thinkers of all Western thought. You know how many ancient copies of Plato we have today? And again, the, the, the oldest one we have wasn't written within 100 years of Plato, but was written 1,200 years after Plato was writing. In the ancient copies, you know how many copies of Plato we have? Seven. Okay. New Testament, 5,696. Plato, much later, seven. How about Aristotle? 49. And the oldest one we have was written, was, was copied 1,400 years after Aristotle lived. What about Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar, right? The great emperor of Rome, right? You'd think people would have preserved his documents. A thousand years is the earliest one we have after Caesar lived, Julius Caesar lived, and we only have 10 ancient copies. The, the New Testament is unlike anything else. It is a phenomenon uh, among people who study antiquities. And, and what's really interesting is the internal consistency between these 5,686 copies of the New Testament that we have in Greek there's between, and, and you know, people disagree with this, between 96 and 99% textual consistency between these copies. That's incredible 
accuracy, again, among such a broad 5,686 range of copies. Now, this is interesting, too. Beyond this, we have 19,000 copies of the New Testament written in the same period in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic languages, right? So within, within 100 years of the writings of these manuscripts, there are 24,000 copies um, being produced and being preserved in such a way to where we still have them today. And of course, the English copies, the English translations of these copies that we have today are being cared for, being seen over by the best scholarship, and therefore we can trust these words as good and reliable. So, so biblically, this is kind of the big topic I'm still on here, but biblically, the Bible sees itself as the very Word of God. And I just want to say this, the Bible has been treated, these copies have been treated as the Word of God. For there to be this many copies, this well-preserved, 1,900 years later, and for there to be the, the kind of textual consistency in these books uh, throughout all of these copies, being hand-copied, they don't, this is before Xerox copies, what does that tell you about how the readers saw them, about how people were treating them? You could trust the Bible biblically. But secondly, what about historically? Does the Bible historically, can we trust the Bible? Given the data that we have from history, can we trust the Bible? And actually, I think the better question is, could this book have been written if it weren't divinely inspired? I think that the real question is not, is it divinely inspired? But, but is it even possible to have such a book that wasn't divinely inspired? Before you strike me down here, think about this with me. Look at, look at every other ancient religious book. So, for example, Hinduism. There's some ancient religious, religious writings in Hinduism. But they're incredibly contradictory. Hinduism doesn't even care if it's contradictory, right? It, it's, it, it, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of different people writing a lot of different things, and it's kind of like anything goes. But I'm talking about religious books that try to be consistent, Okay. All of these ancient religious documents, um, and even not-so-ancient religious documents, were written by one author. So going not too far back in history, look at the Book of Mormon, right? Joseph Smith, one author, writing a book. But even the Quran, right? One author, Muhammad, writing the book, the writings of Confucius. These are one man, one place, one language— and, and even still, these have some pretty, ma- all the ones that I just listed, have some pretty major discrepancies. The Bible, however, think about this, is written by over 40 different authors. It's written over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages, on three different continents. And yet, when rightly understood, it's incredibly coherent and consistent. How, how does this happen? Tell me that. How, how, how is that even possible? That you have 40 different authors in three languages over three continents over 1,500 years writing the same story, writing words that fulfill the other words. You know, how do you have, for example, the prophet Isaiah 53, uh, in, in Isaiah 53, almost perfectly describing the death of Jesus 700 years after this on a Roman cross? How does that happen? That's why I say the the question is not, is this divinely inspired? It's, could this have happened without divine inspiration? 
And there's a lot of other arguments against the Bible, uh, particularly the New Testament. People will say, well, the New Testament, I remember when I was in college, there was a book uh, called The Da Vinci Code, and everyone was reading this book, and, and Dan Brown, the author, put forward this theory that's, that's, he didn't put it forth for the first time, this has been a wide theory, but basically he said, look, the followers of Christ, what they were trying to do is consolidate their political power, and so they kind of created this myth, they created these myths about Jesus and about all that he did in order to prop themselves up. You hear this a lot, the, the followers of Jesus consolidate power, they, they told history in a certain way to give themselves credence. Well, I'm using some thoughts from C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller here, but I want to give you kind of a response to this uh, that I hope will increase your confidence in the New Testament. First of all, the New Testament books, if, if you've thought this, if you've heard this, if you've read this, if you believed this, the New Testament books were written entirely too early to be myth. All scholars believe, all scholars agree that the New Testament was completed before 100 AD. And again, one of the reasons we know this is we have so many copies. And not only do we have copies, we have commentaries being written about these copies. And there's copies of these all over the ancient world in all different kinds of languages. So all scholars basically agree that all of the books were written before 100 AD. Most believe that the last few books uh, of the New Testament were Revelation and John in, in whatever order. Um, written by the eyewitness to Christ, the disciple John. In this, these were written in the 90s, the mid-80s, 90s. But a lot of the books were written just within a couple of decades of the time of Christ. So, for example, a lot of the writings of Paul, a lot of the letters that Paul is writing, these happened just, just 20 years or so. Consider Philippians. The book of Philippians is written just 20 years or so after the time of Christ. And it's interesting, in Philippians 2, Paul there uses this hymn of praise to Jesus, to the deity of Jesus. So what is he doing? He's quoting a previous hymn that people were using across the church that would have written even less than 20 years after the time of Christ. He's quoting a hymn that would have been widely known to, to talk about Jesus, to talk about his Lord. Now, if these, if these documents had been written 500 years after the time of Christ or even 200 years after the time of Christ, then the idea of them being myth and people making up stories about Jesus, well, that might be believable. But there's no way that you could, you could pull that off just 20 or 30 years after the time of Christ. Luke 1 that I read to you in the beginning, um, this is not mythological language. Uh, what does he say here? He says, look, I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've talked to people that I've studied these things. I've looked closely at these things. I've examined these things. And now what I'm trying to give you is a report to what has happened. First Corinthians 15, which is an amazing passage about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul anchors his argument there in First Corinthians 15, verse 6, in that 500 people at one time saw the resurrected Jesus. And then he says, you can go ask them. So just think about that. Paul is writing a public document being passed around the whole Roman world within 20 years of the time of Christ. And he's saying, look, if you don't believe me, go ask the eyewitnesses that were there. This isn't myth. There were too many people around for it to hold up. These, again, these are public documents. 
written within the time of eyewitnesses. You know, if I were to say to you, there was no September 11th attack. That never happened. The World Trade Centers, they, they, we tore those down ourselves. That, there wasn't an attack that happened on September 11th. Or if I were to say to some of you folks living here in Atlanta, if, if, if I were to say, look, the Olympics never came to Atlanta. There was no 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. You're crazy. What are you talking about? You know what you would do? You would say, what are you talking about? I was there. I went to the Olympics. I remember September 11th. This was one of the most memorable days of my entire life. How dare you even suggest that this event didn't happen? Well, this is the same kind of time reference we're talking about here. About 20, 25 years ago, this is when these documents are being written. There, there's no way that you could write a public document about these extraordinary events and then invite people to investigate it. These, these, these documents never would have gotten off the ground. But not only is the New Testament too early to be myth, it's, all, it's also too counterproductive to be myth. If you were writing a document to prop up the leaders of the early church, you wouldn't have written the New Testament. <laughs> you would never write the story of Jesus uh, being in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with God to get out of the crucifixion before he got into it. You wouldn't have written about Jesus screaming out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would never have the key disciples of Jesus falling asleep, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, this moment when Jesus needed them the most. Another thing, you would never have had the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection to be women. At this time, women couldn't even give testimony in a court of law. Their opinions were basically worthless. And so if you were writing a story to try to say that a resurrection happened, you wouldn't choose women to be the character as the first people to give a reference to it. If the disciples were trying to prop up their own leadership in the early church, again, they wouldn't have written the Gospels. They were always slow to believe. They were struggling to understand. They were fighting with each other for position. They look like fools. They are weak in heart. You would never write this. You would never see what Jesus has to say to the churches in Revelation. You would never have the book of 1 Corinthians. If you were writing a document to build up church leaders, you would never write the New Testament. It's incredibly counterproductive, unless, of course, it's true. It's the New Testament, it's written too soon to be myth. It's written, it's too counterproductive to be myth. And lastly, it's too detailed in its form to be a myth. In the 18th century, uh, there was a literary genre invented called the novel, in which fiction was written like an account. Okay, this only started, this idea of a novel in which you give details in fiction, this has really only been around since the 18th century. Ancient fiction, ancient mythology does not read like this. And again, if you don't believe me, you do believe me because you've read ancient fiction. You've read ancient mythology. Go back and read the Odyssey. Go back and read um, the, the Aeneid. Go back and read Beowulf. Just, just read them, Right. They don't read like modern-day novels. They don't read like the New Testament. They're, they're not like this. They don't have ancient detail. They don't have details like this. C.S. Lewis, who taught ancient literature at Oxford University, very familiar, obviously, with ancient literature, he says this concerning the Gospels. I've been reading poems, legends, myths, and vision literature all of my life. I know what they are like. I know that none of them are like you. 
this isn't ancient myth style. The Gospels weren't written as mythological stories. They were written as accounts. They were written as letters. They were written as real detailed documents of things that really happened. And you either have to believe that or believe that these, all of these New Testament authors invented a literary genre that wouldn't be replicated for 17 centuries and then we never saw it again, or you have to believe that they're actually trying to report real events that happen. In summary, the New Testament books are detailed and at times counterproductive accounts written in the time of eyewitnesses that people believed and copied that so often that today, 1,900 years later, we still have 24,000 ancient copies of those texts written within 100 years of their original writing. The reason that this is the case is because the New Testament is true. It's a good and reliable record of the Son of God intersecting with humanity and forever changing the world. Now, again, you might be saying, well, what about the Old Testament? Again, I don't have time to get into that, but the one thing I'll say that this is the trump card on the Old Testament. Jesus believed the Old Testament. Jesus loved the Old Testament. Jesus held on to every word of the Old Testament. It was the anchor of his life. Right? And so to say that you're more sophisticated than Jesus and you can have a different approach to the Old Testament than, than Jesus and Paul and all of the rest of these New Testament authors is just incredibly foolish. But again, we can talk about that another time. So again, we can trust the Bible's reliability. We can trust the Bible's testimony about itself. We can trust it biblically. We can trust it historically. But finally, we can trust it personally. Uh, here's the deal. I, I know this book. I've spent time with it. And the more I read it, the more I love it. Uh, the truer it is, the more life-giving it is. You know, as Hebrews 4.12 said, the, the Word of God really is living and active. It really is sharper than a sword. It really does pierce to the division of soul and joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It has pierced me. It has broken me. It is, it's tested me like no other book has. It, it speaks to me. It speaks to me the word of God. You, know, you have those moments when you're reading the Bible. I know some of you have. When you're reading God's word and it's just the voice of God piercing your soul. As it says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. It's like God looks at me through his word. He, he is seeing me in his word. And look, if you're not a Christian, I know that you're saying, well, you know, this doesn't apply to me. I've never read the Bible like that. But you, you at least have to consider the millions of people that give a similar testimony to the one that I just gave. Christians are a people of the book. When the church is pure, it's, it's a church that loves God's word. And when you can see this, and when you've experienced this, and when you understand the word of God, man, it, it gives so much clarity to life. I started reading it in Luke 24 at the beginning of the sermon. I love that account. It's, it's, the, it's the account of Jesus meeting a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they don't know who he is, and they're all confused. This is after the resurrection. He starts walking with them and eventually starts teaching them. It says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scripture concerning himself. That must have been awesome. 
I mean, I, I, I so wish I could have been on that walk. Here's Jesus teaching the Old Testament. And I'm sure you probably started in the beginning. He said, remember in the beginning of Scripture when God said that the woman would have an offspring that would crush the head of the serpent? There would be an offspring that would come to undo all this evil. I'm sure he explained to him that, that he was the offspring. He was the one who had come to overcome sin and death, and he had done it in the power of his resurrection. He probably took them to the time of Moses and the Passover, the night when they all, for the first time, broke bread with blood on the doorpost and doorframe of their house. And he explained to them, look, it was actually my blood, the blood of the Messiah that saved you from death. And just like Moses came to deliver you, to deliver you out of slavery and bondage, I have delivered you. I, I have delivered you from the greatest slavery and the greatest bondage, the slavery of sin, the bondage of death. Sure, he went to the, the writings and he showed them how even in the Psalms, he is the one who did not walk in the way of sinners or stand in the way of scoffers or sit in the seat of mockers, but he was the one that delighted in the law of God. Sure, he went to the prophets and showed them as Isaiah had written 700 years before that he was pierced for their transgressions, that he was crushed for their iniquities and Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And by his wounds, wounds that he still has, we are healed. I'm sure Jesus explained all of this to them. And I love how they, I love how they conclude in verse 32 after he had left them. You know what, he, what they say? They said, as he was teaching us on the road, when he was talking about these things on the road, didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't we burn when we understood how great Jesus was and how he's fulfilled all of these words that God has given us? And look, I just want to say, maybe some of you right now, your heart is burning a little bit. It's because God is speaking to you right now. God is using his word to show himself to you. You're, you're hearing that ancient Galilean accent, the voice of Jesus speaking through his word to you. This is the word of God. This is the power of God. This word is living and active. It's sharp. It's powerful. It's alive because it's the very word of God and it's the pathway to truth. So I just invite you to believe these words, to anchor your life in these words. And look, if you have questions, we love questions. If there's things confusing, we love thinking about these things. It's confusing to us too, but I can't deny, I can't deny that I hear the voice of Jesus in them. And I invite you in faith to look to God's word and through his word, see his face. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your powerful word, your powerful truth. I pray, Father, that it would penetrate us, it would penetrate me, that that I would be able to escape my little skull-sized kingdom and that I would find you, Lord, the, the true ruler of all the universe and that I would find you in what you revealed and how you've spoken to me and how you've made yourself known to me, Lord. I would trust your word. And Father, I pray that not just for me, obviously, but for everybody who's listening, that we would trust your word, that we, 
would realize that you, the Almighty God, have forfeited your own privacy and made yourself known. That is an amazing thing to believe. It's an incredible thing to believe. But Lord, I believe that it's true and I thank you for it. I thank you for the hope that it gives, for the life that um, it gives, Lord, that we can know you, that you, the Almighty God, have spoken to us. So increase our faith today. Turn our eyes toward Jesus today. May we believe that in this word we can actually see him. He is the, the word of God made known to us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I invite you as you meditate on these things um, to, to, to sing, to worship along with us, and to respond. As uh, Blake mentioned earlier, below the YouTube channel here, there's a couple of links you can text us. You, you, you can connect with us in a connect card. You can join me in the lounge afterward. You can always text us at 678-951-9041. Maybe you actually, maybe there's a big hangup you have in the Bible. You're like, look, I, I just can't get over what the Bible says about slavery or what the Bible says about this or that. I'd love to be able to engage with you in one of those uh, conversations. So please engage with us. Um, we want you to see this truth that God has made known. Uh, and now, in light of what God has shown us, in light of the, the beautiful gospel that God has made known to us in his word, uh, let's respond in worship.